0: Tillem dot com The podcast about pop culture, black history and spirituality. Yeah, it's about to be a great vibe.
1: Dr. Tip, gonna take it away. Till 'em
2: tip told you.
3: Thank you for joining me for another edition of Tell Them Tip Told You. I am so excited to try something new with you today. If you've been listening to the podcast, then you know I've been talking about having guests. Well, no, I'm not there yet. Yet. Um, But I do have something special for you. A couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to present with some colleagues who are also my family you'll hear more about that in the introduction. Um, but I had an opportunity to present with them in Toronto, Canada, at the American Educational Research Association conference there. And I am so excited to share with you those session details and notes, because it's something I think we all should hear. I think it's important conversation. And plus, you know, it's a good way for me to segue into this new podcast format, where I'm bringing in guests. So I stay tuned. I got you tuned in to listen to that session. But before we do, if you are interested or if you know someone who should be on the podcast, make sure you visit my website at you.com. And there is a button there that says be our podcast guest. Go ahead and click that. Even if you're doing it for somebody else, fill out the information. You can't make the agreement for them, but at least I'll have the information to contact them and reach out. So again, I thank you for tuning in today, and I hope you enjoy the conference. Have a good one. Bye.
4: Thanks for joining us.
5: Uh, This is such a pleasure to uh, co-chair and be co discussant with uh, my colleague, Dr. Jillian Ford, who's in the back. Um, She's also a documentarian for the session. (laughs) Um, The other pleasure and honor is to be able to be among family. I am uh, so excited that all of us have the distinct pleasure um, of having studied together and worked together at Emory University in the Division of Ed Studies. And so we have been family since then. And uh, we want to treat this like our, we have a space where we engage intellectually, we engage about our families. And we decided that this session would be an extension of that. And so, as scholars, we have whole selves, and so we have our intellectual selves, and we also have our families where we're thinking about scholarship in relationship to our personal lives. And so hopefully, at the end, we can engage in a critical conversation about all of what the scholars are presenting to us in relationship to our everyday lives and what we're experiencing in real, material ways. So without further ado, I just want to make sure that I introduce the session. Uh, we all are in recentering evidence, examining black educational narratives to challenge the idea of a post truth era. And our uh, presenters, and I'm not sure this is the order, so forgive me if I'm not saying the order. The one paper is The Deception of Post Truth Understanding Black's Desire for Educational Equality and the Influence of Alternate Facts, and that is. Uh, by Latrice, Dr. Latrice Johnson at the University of Alabama, Dr. Tiffany Pogue at Al- uh, Albany State, and Dr. Vincent Duane Willis at University of Alabama. Our next paper is Navigating the Torrid Terrain of Public Education, Remaining Committed to Equality in a Post-Truth Era by Dr. Brandy Nicole Hinnett Crawford at Western Carolina University, also Dr. Vincent Duane Willis, <sighs> University of Alabama. Our next paper is Teaching Our Own, A Collective Ethnography of the Establishment of an African-Centered Charter School, by Dr. Khalila Odessa Ali at Clayton State University.
6: Yes, the whole
5: Dr. Denise Johnson at M. Hotep Academy, and Dr. Latrice Johnson, if you don't know already, they are sisters and twins, at um, University of Alabama. And then our final paper, For Us, This Is Not New, Evidencing Black Educational Responses to a Post-Truth Continuum, Pre-Brown, by our uh, esteemed Dr. Cheryl Jones-Croft at Kennesaw, and Dr. Yoshi Jurgensen in spirit um, at Tuscaloosa City School, and also Dr. Pogue, Albany State, and Dr. Michael Coleman, Camden City Schools. And my name is Keisha Green. I'm from the University of uh, Massachusetts at Amherst. Okay,
0: we'll get started. Thank you, Dr. Green. Thank you. Thank you.
7: Can you all hear me fine? Or should I speak into the microphone?
6: Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. No, I'm reaching out.
7: Good afternoon. I'm Latrice Johnson. And I just want to first um, kind of set up this theoretical paper, The Deception of Post-Truth. Understanding Black's Desire for Educational Equality, and the Influence of Alternate Facts, Alternate Facts. So this is a theoretical paper that is in development, and we are seeking together to interrupt this idea that truth has ever existed for people of color, especially um, in our quest for U.S., for educational equality. Um, We assert that a tendency to define the current political climate as an era of so-called post-truth is, by its very nature, evidence of the ways in which the white experience, and as it continues to be, centralized um, discourse in the development of um, education and throughout history for our students. So here we provide a critical analysis of black educational history, specifically um, as it relates to the public education system and how blacks, <clears throat> excuse me, have continued to um, strive for educational equity and um,
3: equality for our students. And so as Dr. Green said earlier, one of the things we wanted to do this morning was to be more conversational in nature about the theoretical paper as it develops than to just do straight presentation. Um, and so we wanted to have a public conversation about what it means to develop a post-truth continuum. So we know post-truth, as it's commonly used in pop culture presently, was made popular in 2016 by the Oxford Dictionaries when they made it the word of the year um, as a result of Trump's election. So post-truth as an error is described as the period in time which, within which sensationalized news and propaganda is exploited. And people who admittedly probably understand that it is not the truth because it aligns with their inherent biases will consider it to be truthful. And so, one of the arguments we made when we initially saw the call for AERA this year was that that's not new for black people. Like, we've always lived within a context within which we have to respond to these alternative facts about who we are. Um, whether or not we're human, whether or not we have potential, etc. And so that's what has driven this development of a continuum.
0: So, in addition to what uh, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Polk as mentioned, we, we, we want to be clear, we're not saying that things are stagnant, right? That, things are, that, that what it is today is the same. However, or, or are the same, I'm sorry. But, but one thing that, that we theorize in this paper are the similarities, right? These ideas that have Morphed throughout history, the ideas that that have what 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 we often frame as like this kind of oppressive context, right? And and the black people or marginalized people in, in general, and black people specifically, have had to operate within those frames, even even within their historical context. The ideas of of of, of black inferior, inferiority and white, white white superiority have often shaped those experiences. So we just want to be careful that within this post truth era, we're not saying that all eras are the same, but they have similarities, right? And 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 and, and, and which have affected the black experience educationally.
7: And I think two of those here, um, those similarities relate to U.S. schooling and the dominant uh, rhetoric around schooling. Um, One, that contemporary forms of post-truth rhetoric ignore the ways in which post-truths have long been experienced by marginalized populations in the U.S., and that race and schooling are, um, in the U.S. are intricately linked and framed to the educational inequalities that exist in America, um, historically and contemporarily.
3: And so when we think about um, history, for those of us who are more African-centered, We we tend to see time as cyclical, and so there is less periodization, hard and fast boundaries between given errors, so much as you see a continuum of behavior and consequences, antecedents to behavior, consequences, and that all fills into the cycle. What we have found is that this idea of post-truth, as is experienced uh, particularly by The descendants of Africans in this country is that whiteness has always been normalized at the same time black is presented as the other. And what that does is create and validate a caste system um, in American society. So if we think about someone like Samuel Cartwright, who created a a mental conditioned drapetomania, so that enslaved people who attempted to liberate themselves were diagnosed as having a mental defect, Um, at the same time people were still celebrating the American Revolutionary War, as if the pursuit of freedom does not mean the same for both of those groups. And so for us, that's evidence of these alternative facts being fed into this validation of an existing caste system. At the same time, you have um, all men are created equal. You have the three-fifth compromise that, that diminishes African humanity. And so there's this representation of alternative facts then. So, continuously throughout history, you've had Africans having to assert their humanity, their potential, their intellectual prowess um, in the face of a system that seeks to other them as not possessing those things.
7: One way that this plays out in U.S. schools is this idea that there's an achievement gap between blacks and whites. Um, And we know through... um, why is achievement gap? Uh, give me y'all. Give Gloria. Me, Gloria. Yes, yes. Gloria yes. Lassen-, lassen Billings <coughs> about.
0: Goodness. I'm sorry, Doctor Billings. I, I said Gloria like <laughs> I know a person. Right, right. Yeah. Gloria
7: lassen <laughs> Billings talks about that there is not an achievement gap, but there is actually a debt, mm-hmm. an educational debt that we owe to um, Black and historically marginalized people in this country. Um, but one way that this idea of a, an alternative fact plays out, right, in our schools, is that. You know, there's a normalization of curriculum. is white, Eurocentric. Um, there's a normalization of behavior, which has led to unjust discipline practice mm-hmm. that overwhelmingly um, affects black and brown children. There's also this idea of resegregation, where students are being resegregated into particular classes. So black students are... In regular ed classes, they're in special ed classes, whereas um, white students are served in advanced placement, honors classes, etc. So here, you see it play out in schools how this continuum, um, th- this example, is affecting black students because of this one alternative fact that there is an achievement gap between blacks and whites.
0: So, in this uh, post-truth continuum, uh, the one thing that we, that that in our work, we want to theorize um, is that that these things have consequences, right? And we often talk about history as some abstract thing that happened, you know, uh, ten years ago, twenty years ago, forty years ago, hundred years ago, without dealing with the consequential nature of the of, of of those behaviors. And and if we think about, it, particularly how we follow the post-truth era in real time, we see those consequences, right, from, from this ideal of even thinking that there's achievement gap without dealing with the context of, of, of well, if there's achievement gap, right, if, if, if we don't, you know, adopt uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Lance Billings' uh, argument, let's say you, you reject that argument, right? So what are the consequences, right? What, what, what are the historical facts? That that leads us to an achievement gap. What what you know? How does segregation play in there and and, and things like that? And so those are things that we're talking about. When we're talking about a continuum that that we have to understand that what happened in 1894, and I'm just throwing that date out. Affected what happened in 1914, that that affected what happened in 1940, that affected what happened in 1960, and so on, so on, and so forth. And if we continue to have these detached conversations, as if these errors, to 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 Dr. Poe's point, are de- are are detached er- errors instead of interconnected errors, then we have a a historical conversation around not only post-truth, but also education equality, right? And so we deal with these kind of contemporary frameworks or these contemporary issues as if they are new to us, right? And so Trump becomes a boogeyman or, 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 or a new nemesis— Or an where, anomaly. Or an anomaly, uh-huh. when actually— a lot of things that he's doing policy-wise. Now you can argue about his demeanor, you can argue about his decor, and all those things may be new, right? He's he's not as civil yeah. as a Bush or as a as a Reagan or as a uh, Nixon, or and you want to keep following that or Taft and all these things, but. If you look at policy, the effects are continuous it's not a break from these kind of racial ideologies that that, 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 that exist, and so what we're trying to do is have a much more nuanced conversation around what does that mean if these if these consequences are continuous, what does that mean for you know black people in our paper but black and brown people or, or people who have been other through the educational system and we argue that those have profound Consequences, negative consequences for what we see in 2019. That makes sense. Perfect.
3: And so the papers that are presented this morning are filling out of that post truth continuum idea that these are not distinct periods in history where Africans and their descendants are responding to a particular era of post truth, but what it looks like to be in response to a continuum of post truth. So that in 1829, when Savannah outlaws the teaching. Of blacks literacy, what does it look like when we look at literacy proficiency rates in Georgia today? What is the, what was the response then? What is the response now? And hopefully, we can use the historical response to inform our contemporary and future responses to what we call the post-truth continuum,
7: and also possibly reimagine those the ways forward.
0: Okay. Right. So that's the first paper, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> i <open this> slide? <laughs> no, you can just put yeah. it I'm just playing musical chairs for a
8: minute. Does that fit? I think so. They should
7: just-
0: up. Excuse me. Okay. Well, that's oh, not supposed it to do that. I Yeah. I just have to do it. Um, I do it without the notes. Um, that's not what I want to do. Uh, okay, that was- mm. All right. So, again, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Vincent Willis. This is Dr. Brandy Nicole Hennick Crawford. And so, uh, as as Dr. Green, it, 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 you know, talked about how these conversations took place, right, that, that we all know each other. I don't know what's going on. Uh, we, we all know each other. And, you know, so Dr. Uh, just know we have a PowerPoint, so, you know, you can look at us. Uh, Dr. You know, Dr. Uh, no problem. Dr. Dr. Uh, Brandy and I feel (laughs) weird. Brandy and I was having a conversation at last ARA uh, about just ways in which we could talk about the nuance of how black parents are responding to um, how black parents are responding to. I don't know what's going on, but I don't know why my kids. How 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 black parents are responding to the issues that that they face, right? And and, and one thing I talked talked to Brandy about is what what discouraged me as a person who's in Tuscaloosa but lives in Atlanta, uh that you you, you heard the same kind of conversations, right? Black parents who had children who were who, who, who were enrolled in uh you know primary and secondary education. They, they were having similar conversations. In Atlanta, it's supposed to be this mecca, and I was trying to figure out, well, why are black parents having to respond in the same way as black parents who supposedly do, don't have the social mobility or the economical capital as those in Atlanta? Why, why are the conversations the same, right? And so, Brand and I were talking about ways in which we can tr- try to understand the, the, this 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 nuance, understand this this reality, and so. Then a larger conversation, you know, took place when, you know, AERA came out with the call of the post-truth and, and how does that happen? So what Brandon and I want to do briefly today is really talk about how we—how black parents are navigating what we call this, this torrid terrain, right, this, this landscape um, that, 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 that they face. And so what we're going to do today, uh, again, briefly, is discuss how the recent college admissions scandals help provide context uh, for the racialization of education and school choice. We're going to elevate the frameworks and methodologies we use to operationalize school choice, and we're going to analyze the preliminary data that that, that shape the landscape that Black parents have to navigate. And so, for all of for all of you who don't know, you know, particularly in the American context, that was a recent college scandal uh, about a month ago, where the FBI were investigating. Uh, well, not investigating; they actually did the investigation. Now, the brought indictments to about 50 uh, affluent, mostly white parents. And coaches about how you know how how they was you know circumventing the the, the, the system to get their children uh, enrolled in these elite institutions, right? And so it was Yale, uh, Stanford, and all these elite institutions. And and then what happened was a conversation around cheating the system, right? And and and, and, and meritocracy and what's fair. And one of the comments that that, that I thought and why I wanted to start it uh, start this conversation like this was about uh, the president of, of of Yale came out with a with a statement about how Yale is you know uh, re- reevaluating their admissions policies and how this is an attack on the system right and and and, and, and the president I think the name is Salavi or i 'm messing up the name but that 's the name and so I actually argue that the that, that the language we use to address or to address the situation places us even in places the the, the post truth in a much more Problematic state, right? Because it it it, it 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 then paints something as foreign, right? That all, the, that these systemic issues, you know, come to the forefront, and we use it instead of instead of using this opportunity to have a real conversation around equity, around meritocracy around whatever, you know, uh, intellectual work you want to use, it's often swept up under the rug or, or or cited as, oh, this is something new, right? This is something that, that American institutions are not used to, when in actuality it may not be to that extreme where you're paying, you know, coach to say your daughter or son has an athletic scholarship. You know, that that is a little extreme, particularly when they don't play that sport. But, <laughs> right, but the ways in which People try to find, you know, uh, advantages. It's not new, right? And, and, and those advantages have always been skewed to certain people who have resources, and those people who don't. Mm-hmm. And so, what we're what we're trying to get at is, is is if we think about, like, we didn't need a college scandal to tell us that the system was unfair, right? We, we didn't need, you know, two actresses and an executive and a big time lawyer to tell us that the the the, the system is, is not fair. But I think. What is problematic, though, is ways in which we can use these opportunities to, 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 to expand where we are, right, this ideal about meritocracy and this ideal about choice and how choice has always been racialized, right, how school choice has never been um, equal. And one of the things I talk to my students about always when I tell them, I said, you know, I don't know if this is true for, 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 for uh, you know, for Canada or to the Toronto context, but definitely in the American context, you don't have to be familiar with any city— or state, right? But if you drive to that city or state, you know immediately where you want your kids to go to school and where you don't want your kids to go to school, right? Because it's linked with the houses in that area. It's linked with a whole lot of other things mm-hmm. that we know. We don't want to go and redline and all that, you know, all the stuff for, for, for argument's sake. But we know these things are not fair and we know these things affect school choice. But we, but we but, but oftentimes we don't like to have these nuanced conversations. So what we, what we wanted to do is, is is really talk to parents and say given that we know the inequities, the, 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 the inevitable equities that parents have to face, right? Which means that the landscape that black and brown and other parents have to face are not equitable, right? That, that That's a very, you know, uh, hostile terrain that they have to navigate. So how are they making sense of this? And so ways in which we thought about this, and I, I, for argument time, uh, we won't go into uh, great details about critical race theory or uh, rational, rational, choice, uh, rational choice. Tr- choice there, but we are that there, there are theoretical frameworks and methodologies that, that 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 are moving these conversations forward. And so, what 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 what? Briefly, what we what we accept is that you know what critical race theory understand or articulated, you know, with Crenshaw and others about how race is you know salient and influences all things. Right, and since race is salient and influences all things, that means that. We are not in a post-truth era, right? Because race is still salient and still influencing decisions. Mm-hmm. And so how do we then understand this? How do we have a conversation about parents who don't wake up every day saying, damn, what is the operation? How am I going to operationalize race today? Or how am I going to, you know, intellectual, you know, uh, lies these, the, 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 you know, the way in which my parents, my students are being over you know, uh, over-discipline and things like that. So, how do how 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 do parents who are having just like ground-level conversations, ground-level interactions with with these institutions, how do they make sense of that? And so, I would turn it over to Brandy, and she would then you know move through our methodologies and Don't the me okay preliminary findings.
2: Okay, before I jump into the methodology, I would like to just say. Um, We did use critical race and rational choice theory, and the kind of uh, foundation of rational choice theory, it says that actors have preferences, and what they do is they act to try to maximize their preferences at the least amount of cost. So um, what we're sharing with you today is the first part of a sequential, explanatory, um, mixed method research design. And we began with a questionnaire, just generally asking parents um, three things. What influences your choice when you are trying to figure out where to send your kid to school? kind of what influences your satisfaction with schools, and then how satisfied are you with the current state? We began with some snowball sampling, and um, this is an ongoing study. Currently, our link is still live, and so this is just a snapshot of the preliminary data we have. And so um, for the analysis, that's presented here, we had 62 black parents and 28 non-black parents. Um, I think it was like 98% of the 28 were white. Um, but of the black parents, we had a, a really um, a wealthy sample, so to speak. Um, only 13% of our respondents made less than $50,000 a year. Um, a little over... had less than a bachelor's degree. On average, they had two children. The great majority went to traditional public schools. And when I say traditional public, I mean a non-charter school. Um, But we did have 16% in charters, almost 23% in private schools, and 6.5% that were homeschooling. Almost 40% of our sample had children that were identified as gifted. Um and about ten percent has children with IEPs and another ten percent children with five oh four plans It's okay.
9: Just
2: let me oh, we got one
9: minute.
2: it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> OK. So so for research question one, we asked parents what mattered um, when they were choosing a school. And I'm going to go really quickly. And the the top five things that mattered were teacher, uh, the quality of the teachers, the quality of the leadership, how much the institution fit for their child, how inclusive the curriculum was, and if it was academically challenging. And this is in the quantitative portion where we had um, 19 things that folks could rank. Um, In the qualitative portion, they also spoke about how strong the gifted programs were at these institutions. Um, And there were some differences between our black respondents and our non-black respondents and some significant differences, particularly around the areas of diversity. And that was dealing with the diversity of the faculty and staff, the diversity of the leadership, the diversity of the students, and how inclusive the curriculum were. In those uh, four areas, we saw statistically significant differences. Um, And that was done uh, using an independent samples t-test. Um, If anyone cares. (laughs) The other question was about parental satisfaction. Um, And this was uh, more qualitative in nature. Um, And there were kind of three big themes that came up. One was the practicality of what they were learning. How could they apply what they were learning in a non-academic setting? Um, And I have some quotes up here, which I don't have time to read to you. But... uh, I do have time. Well, I can't even stand up here so slow. Um, so th- they really wanted to their children to be in schools where it was not just about book work, but that they could apply it in real settings and real life. That was, came up time and time again. The next piece was the inclusivity and having um, their children see themselves or people who look like them in the curriculum. And um, one... One uh, parent, and I assume it was a mother because most of the respondents were women, talked about um, moving her child out of the traditional school to homeschool because of this lack of inclusivity. And then last but not least was a healthy environment. Um, They spoke a lot about, I want my teachers or I want my child's teachers to care for them and who they are as an individual. I want them to address the whole child. Um, And I want my child to feel good about going to school. And then our final research question was about just their general satisfaction. Um, They were least satisfied with uh, support staff, so the school psychologists and social workers and those types of folks. Um, And then they were also uh, the least satisfied with the diversity of faculty and staff, which knowing the demographics of educators in the United States, um, it's probably clear why that is. And then, so we asked them, how far do you think you would need to go to get to a school that you would be satisfied with? Um, And while almost 70% said they were cool with where they were, 23 almost 25 percent said that they needed to go at least 15 miles and the, the options went to up to over 50 miles and um a lot of people thought they had to go really far we didn't include all of it but um so saying that yeah what's what's in my neighborhood or what's close by is not necessarily what I want for my child and so in some um black parents want it all there are a lot of things that are important when choosing a school. They want the rigor and the care. They want diversity and the individual consideration for their child. Um, and while they want it and their preferences came out very clear, um, what was less clear is, is what they're able to do to get those things for their children. Thank you. Thank you.
7: I'm back. <clears throat> so let me just be very clear and transparent. My name is Denise Johnson. I do not have a doctorate. Thank you, Keisha. Um, she shares mine. I was just (laughs) going to say that. So, um, but I do have, um, loads of experience. So fortunately I work at an all, um, African American centered school. We serve about, um, 175 students, so the school choice just really fits to what we're going to talk about today. And we're talking about teaching our own collective ethnography of the establishment of an African-centered charter school. And of course, you notice that the word charter is scratched out because doing the work, we figured maybe charter is not the way that we want to go. Um, So our guiding research questions what are the practices of black collective looking to establish an African-centered school? How are those practices connected to African-centered ways of being and doing? And what does it mean for a black collective to teach their own and oppose truth and So, um, for this work, we decided to um, kind of conduct a collective ethnography that really um, speaks to um, using shared knowledges and um, ways of knowing that are not just individual or quote unquote um, objective. So um, we look at this as a collective endeavor, and the three of us actually worked on this paper. But um, we do consider all the participants, researchers in their own right, because we were all um, seeking to to know what would be the best um, school for. African-American children. Um, So we understand our planning also as field work. We've, for the um, data collection, we have recordings of planned meetings, uh, field notes, as well as documents and artifacts. Um, And we also understand that collaboration is necessary for us to develop um, an understanding of how we experienced this this beginning and this planning together and what that means. Um, This is also work toward theoretical innovation and theory building that we are still um, seeking to develop and work on as we move forward as collective ethnographers. All right, so um, we began this work... I have a really connected network, and so does Latrice. So we wanted to found this school um, definitely using the people that we have around us, our, um, our collected network, the people we know. Um, and to do this work, oh, so yes, we're all connected in this way. Latrice put together this great graphic to show our, connect, our connections. So we're friends, colleagues, parents. We're taking into account what we want for our own children um, and what we've experienced over the years. As public school teachers and... um, Leaders. Mm -hmm. So um, with this... Oh, you do to talk about the African Senate? Yes. Yes. All right. So even in the founding of the school, um, we thought about ways of knowing and being that were African-centered um, and African-centered ways of knowing and being seeks to honor spirituality, wisdom, critical interventions, and transnational black people's ways of knowing and being. And that includes in research. Um, I think a lot of research, educational especially, um, could be recentered around African-centeredness um, as we look to provide a better system and better systems for black children in this country. Um, And also want to note that African-centered epistemologies and ontologies and pedagogies are important to this work as um, we understand what we know and how we know it, what we feel um, we know, and then how we teach, how we move forward. So with articulating the vision, we want to mirror these practices we, we're we connected, of course. We share food and space. We honor our ancestors through libation, honoring um, those before us, those educators for guidance. And we also engage in dialogue about the purpose of schooling for black children. And we collectively come together to discuss these things about once a quarter. About once a mm-hmm. quarter. So we understand that what we do, our practices must match what we want for our children. So in these, um, so our models, the Afrocentric approach, we're using the MAAT Center Program, um, MAAT Youth Group Model, Guzu Guzusaba, the Principles of Af- Afrocentrism, and um, Personhood Development Program. And so what we found with these African-centered the African-centered language is that we want to also move that language language that it doesn't um, affect gender so or identify gender or identify as one gender. So we want to pay respect to a person's choice while at the same time honoring beliefs and systems of African people. Mm-hmm.
4: So um, let's talk a bit about Um, why we've chosen more of an African-centered framework versus a culturally relevant framework that often, um, when folks talk about Afrocentrism, it kind of gets subsumed beneath cultural relevant pedagogy, which in some ways is okay, but we're going to tease out a little bit more what that means. Um, So when you look at our framework, which is AIK, African Indigenous Knowledges, um, Diller and Bell talk about the ways in which people, um, even African diasporic people, still retain some aspects of their African identity. And that that can include some very—even um, though there, Africa is huge, right? We, it's a continent. It's not a country, right? But when we talk about Afrocentric frameworks, often the Afrocentric frameworks Um, in the last 20 or 30 years, center around certain areas, so um, Western Africa. So you'll hear us when I'm talking about some of the themes that generated from the data, usually refer to West African traditions, some Ghanaian, some Nigerian, but also Ma'at is um, associated with Egypt, and that's true, but if, if some of us are aware of the history of the dynastic period, Some of the latter diastic periods uh, took place in what we would call sub-Saharan Africa, right? So um, um, very—even though Egypt, that notion of sub-Saharan and upper uh, Arab is is fictive, but that's for another presentation. So— Right. It's a different way. Right. It, it, so our lens is really rooted in this idea that there are West African traditions that, as educators, we are sort of continuing. So the Nguzu Saba is Ghanaian, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, wow. Milana Karanga, who is an African-American scholar rooted in cultural black nationalism, who is a problematic figure, um, but we're, we know him from Kwanzaa. Right. So we, we, we know about Kwanzaa. So there are specific um principles of the Nguzu Saba that we reflected in our work. So there are seven principles, umoja, unity. So obviously as a collective and that beautiful diagram. Um, it, it was it was dope. I, like yeah, it. I like it <laughs> Doctor Johnson generated. Showed the in- interconnectedness of all of us. Not just because we're all scholars or we met, but we many of us had known each other in different capacities. Mm -hmm. So, um, and and beyond just the way that we knew each other, but the idea that the vision was quite unified through what the sisters had, had developed. Uh, Kujichagulia, self-determination. So to be a group of scholars who clearly have a bunch of different things going on, to be determined enough to want to build this school um, for collective work and responsibility. So Mm -hmm. we certainly worked on this collectively, even though it was the vision of the sisters. Ujama cooperative economics, if you look back at that graphic, there were folks who might not have been educators in a traditional sense, uh-huh. but they were certainly invested, so economically invested. Um, so there's a time investment, but uh, there's also an economic investment. So NIA, purpose, which is, is um, clear in the mission statement, the vision, that the purpose was to provide for parents, and obviously their students, a space where they were cared for. Um, AIK also talks about this notion of care and commitment, um, and that our school would provide that for uh, african descent students. So creativity. I'm an artist. Uh, another one of the participants, also an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, two. Mm-hmm. Two participants, also an artist. And embedded in the framework, embedded in the mission, is um, creativity. And... And interdisciplinary, so not just you go to your arts class, but throughout the curriculum. And, and this thing is being developed. Still. Yes. Still. But there is this this idea of creativity and faith. So um, as we sort of named... Um, coded the the data from our conversation partners with three, or is it four, four things that came out. So first is the continued relevance of the Nguzo Saba that I just outlined. Iwa Pele, Black educators display, display Iwa Pele, which comes out of the uh, Yoruba tradition um, Ifa Ocha, that is defined as good character and level-mindedness. Um, as we served as not only master teachers but also models of excellence, as we participated in the founding of the school, consistently and thus reflected on this neo uplift philosophy. So I'm adding neo, but I really liked how we talked about the continuum. Mm-hmm. In this post-truth era, none of these things are are new. If we're always resisting um, falsehood and the dominant group narrative, we're countering it. Um, Okay. Um, So, (laughs) in countering that false narrative, it is very important that we have integrity as scholars. Three... For the people, teachers reflected a feminist ethic of care rooted in African indigenous knowledge steeped in rememory memory of modern movement and coalition building, but also, which our next panel will talk about, um, future building, a vision of the future. So respecting our ancestors, continuing the tradition of our ancestors, um, this uplift philosophy that is found throughout the literature on black teacher identity, but also in, in remembering that we're, we continue to movement and coalition build, Um, And four, the truth will make you free, which is a uh, verse from the Bible, John 8.32, is demonstrated by the ways in which the collective of scholars constructed a liberatory curriculum that sought to not only empower black children, but to equip them with the skills, attitudes, and dispositions to prepare them to confront the post-truth discourses prevalent in modern communicative spaces, including social media. Finally, overall, the labor of birthing the school revealed that the educators involved were deeply invested in the well-being and protection of our children. And despite the often problematic aspects of constructing a charter, which the good doctor invoked, which may contradict some of the underlying ideas and missions, including sovereignty, just have, being able to not be subsumed under this charter that is um, some dictates with having a charter, Teachers remain investment in uplifting and supporting independent Black institutions. So I, I'm, the charter is marked out because mm-hmm. how do you have an independent Black institution, which is rooted in Afrocentric thought? This institution must be independent, but we have to get a charter and all that mm-hmm. comes with it. And
7: it's a it's a very sobering idea that we can't look to public education to educate Black children. Which you know, maybe that can start our conversation once we've heard the last paper.
6: Mm -hmm. Teresa, you want to leave your computer, please.
8: Good afternoon. Um, it's such a pleasure. First of all, it's such a pleasure to be here. That's first and foremost. But secondly, it's a pleasure to present with my colleagues. Uh, they have did a great, great, excellent job in terms of their thought process. And also, what I, what I would like to talk to you guys about today is, for us, this is not new. Evidencing Black Educational Responses to a post post truth Era, Pre-Brown. Okay, so... The agenda here is as follows: Um, we can talk about the purpose, um, conceptual framework, uh, methods, data, and uh, and findings. Discussions at the end as well. Now, post-truth. This word, this phrase, became popular in 2016. Um, Also, there's a group of individuals who sensationalize uh, propaganda and also think that this term is important for some people. But however, for us, uh, the term post-truth, um, it's, 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 it kind of relates to the current era. However, it is ignoring the fact that some of the marginalized people, which is us, we, this is something that we always dealt with. This is something that we, we, we've been a part of, right? Um, so in the first paper and the second paper, we heard about students with special needs. We heard about how parents... Um, push for their students. However, I want to change the narrative quickly. In my situation, I am in New Jersey. um, Unfortunately, our students with special needs are not given proper resources to become successful, first first and foremost. Secondly, our parents, unfortunately, um, brought into this. Right. So this is where this critical race piece come in. They brought into the fact that, you know what? I'm a young parent. I can send my school, my children to school from a from grade. I mean, from time, seven o'clock in the morning to six in the evening. And if my student has special needs, he will have all these things, all these resources for him. So when it's coming, when it's time to. watch these students in terms of their performance in the classroom, the parents would say to our students, you know what, I want you to act the fool. I want you to act up so we can get this special ed thing on a roll and they become, they become students with special needs, and then they will get additional monies. But the question becomes, where did this thought process come from? Why are our parents thinking this way? And I think with the works that our, our, my colleagues is doing in the, in, uh, for papers one, two, and three, this will kind of flush it out in a sense. Okay, so again, um, blacks here in the U.S. I'll be mean in the U.S. Um, they have to go with this du- duality of truth, right? Um, the hemogenic society, marginalized people, and then other created by Black folks themselves. Um, when they decided to say, you know what? We're not going to take this no more. We're going to fight. And how are we going to fight through this? We're going to fight through counter-stories. We're going to fight through counter-narratives. Um, We're going to fight through counter-resisted individuals to um, educate our children. So our conceptual framework consists of um, three things. The post-truths continuum, critical race theory, and afro right? So let's talk about, um, well, I would like to talk about the post-truth continuum, but our, our colleagues did a great job. So I thank you for that. And also the critical race piece, two things. Um, in, in, in this particular segment, is naming a given period of time to a culture that, that does not matter. We're not, we don't want to do that, right? But that's what research has done. That's what society, society has done. However, we want to use this time to counteract that with the impetus of um, nomenclature, of, of, of post-truth. So what, what we want to do is move from the, the post-truth continuum, the critical race theory, to Afrocentrism. And then Afrocentrism, in other words, is like the, um, the Sankofa bird, right? So it's kind of like going in both directions at the same time. So we want to use this. Um, to have a holistic, a holistic approach and understanding to behaviors of Black educators pre-Brown. Thank you.
3: Um, and so, as Dr. Coleman said, this this we have a desire to move temporally without boundary. So we're looking at the past not only as the past, but as part of the future. Um, With this, and so where do we go for information? Our data sources include publications prepared by black education um, educator organizations, including, for example, the National Association of Teachers in Colored Schools, um, the National Association of Teachers in the South, uh, the Georgia Association, and various other organizations throughout Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia. We also used interview transcripts of uh, black teachers in North Carolina who had taught during the pre-Brown era. Other archival documents, letters, and things of that um, like from black educators pre-Brown. And then we combed the extant literature on pre-Brown. And so that is those are the data sources that we use to inform this particular ongoing study. And we analyzed the data through uh, qualitative coding. So one of the things that we did was to look at, in particular, How these black educators were responding to progressivist rhetoric, how they were using progressivist rhetoric, which for many black people was alternative facts, right, that schooling could provide for democratic equality. Black educators knew that that was not the case, but they wanted to create an environment within which they could prepare students for a world that did not yet exist. And so when we were combing through the different documents I've explained to you, We looked for these two elements that uh, Dewey discusses. One is that there should be numerous and various points of shared common interest in schooling. And then two, there should be greater reliance upon the recognition of mutual interests. And so that's how we addressed uh, the various data. We also looked at seven cardinal principles of progressivism. So we were looking for things related to civic education, ethical character, home ownership, vocation, worthy use of leisure, health, command of fundamental processes. That command of fundamental processes is probably what we think about most often when we think about contemporary curricula. So the reading, writing, mathematics, things like that. But you see these other six elements are things that are marginalized in contemporary curricula. Okay. So some of the findings um, from the study include this list as follows, that we have educators pre-Brown explicitly invoking uplift language. So whereas now it's almost taboo to believe in racial uplift, like that, I don't know why that's a problem now, but these educators had no problem suggesting that what they were responsible for was for the good of the entire people. Um, We also saw that they explicitly designed and implemented civics instruction to prepare those students for a world that didn't exist. So no, you can't vote yet, but we're going to make sure when you can, you're ready, right? Right. Um, They orchestrated activities designed to involve students in the civic process, so again, practicing what it looks like to register to vote, what it looks like to be involved in politics. I think this is something that we should definitely uh, be going back to. They promoted educational ideas as the means by which black students would eventually achieve full citizenship. So it wasn't just going to be gifted to you. You had to be engaged in a process to earn it for yourself, right? And then the language generated by these pre-Brown educators was purposefully inclusive of all learners. For example, Dr. Walker reminds us of of this all the time. One of the sayings in the segregated South was, when a child comes to you speaking a language, he or she has already demonstrated their capacity for learning. So this idea that you would have students who could not learn was foreign to them. It was the responsibility of the master teacher to figure out the pedagogy and the curricula that would reach all students. And so here's an example of a letter from Carter G. Woodson um, to the dean at Fisk University, October 1, 1927. And what you see in there is a call for the inclusion of black history in the curriculum at Fisk. Now, Fisk is an HBCU, so one would think that they would be teaching that. But (laughs) I'm at an HBCU now. We still have this struggle, right? Um, But you see in the letter, Woodson is using that uplift language. Right. It's propaganda not to teach these students who they are. It's propaganda not to teach them how their people have contributed to civilization. And if we want to create an opportunity for them to change a system, to respond directly to these alternative facts, then we have to be clear with them about who they are, who they come from and who they're responsible for. Um, And you also see that he saw education as liberatory. And that is not unusual in this literature from this this time period. Again, the racial uplift is very explicit in ways that I think a lot of contemporary educators are afraid of using.
6: In terms of the discussion and the findings, educators purposefully sought input and collaboration from all community stakeholders, including civic leaders, families, merchants, and business owners. This is critical because it was a symbiotic relationship. They all worked together to uplift the child. The child was at the pinnacle of the educational um, endeavors. And when you compare that to contemporary, Exercises. Quite often, parents are more um, at odds with the school leaders than they are anything else. Hence, when they are at odds with the school leaders, then you find that they can, they find that they cannot communicate, and then they want to go elsewhere and exercise choice. Which, ironically, they think they're going to be accepted in better, right? But that doesn't happen, and so they find themselves um, kind of in a stalemate and educators understood the need for the multi-directional flow of knowledge across various levels and kinds of institutions. And that's one of the things that, if you will allow me, we've lost, right? Because when we talk about how people in the academy talk to and with the practitioners as if somehow the practitioners are the lesser of the two, then we've lost A large portion of what we need to be able to educate and inform children. Discussion. What have we heard? We've heard truth versus knowledge, shared community, purpose, intentionality, the whole child, progressivism. But if you look at that, that's not new. Those are terms that are not new for us. For us, we have always lived in a duality of existence with a double consciousness. You can't help it. You realize that the rhetoric on one hand is for somebody, but somehow it doesn't translate to us necessarily. But the beauty— Of looking to the past is that there was a shared common interest. This is appropriated from progressivism, right? That they believed that there was a shared common interest, even though they were not talking about our shared uh, interest. So, in a kind of flip of interest convergence, we appropriated that language. And we decided that we had to have a shared uh, common interest for us and for our children in order to survive. And the the more mutual these um, interests were, that we could uh, use them to educate our children. Think about the society, church, school, family, all of them work together. That was the basis for the mutual interest. Another key point is that for pre-Brown educators, They used the interest convergence, and they were aware of and understood that if somehow the children in the school did not succeed, black people wouldn't succeed. Not only would they not succeed, but they would not survive. And so it was in their interest to inculcate, instill, and invest in their children a belief that society could be better for them than it was for the parents and the educators. And what did they use? They used the seven principles, civic education. Tiffany's already talked about that. Ethical character. It was instilled and beaten into these children that you have to have morals. You know you cannot lie. If you would lie, you would steal and you would kill. That was instilled in them. And you heard that mantra, day in, day out from every teacher that you went to, from your preacher in the pulpit and from your parents when they got ready to beat you behind because you did something wrong in, in school, right? Last year killed, and sorry if y'all don 't believe in corporate punishment, they used to use it back then, I can 't help it they did oh, yeah. and they, and then home ownership <laughs> if you could own your home, if you could get the credit necessary to own your home, then you were moving in the direction that they thought you should vocation vocation was not looked down upon um, there was a mantra that. You can get all the education you want, and you should, but you should still be able to do something with your hands so that in the event that this did not work, you would be able to support yourself. My example, my assistant principal, uh, was also a master locksmith. And so when you wanted somebody to hook your door up because you didn't want anybody to break in, that's who you called. That was what, um, okay. (laughs) And then worthy of leisure that you would find the kinds of things that would um, fulfill your life, build your life, enrich your life. You know, um, hence, extracurricular activities. I know this is going to sound very hegemonic, but from the time I was in the third grade, that doesn't say anything about when, when I went to school. I'm not telling you all that. Okay. <laughs> but from the time I was in the third grade, we went to the symphony every year. The whole school went to the symphony symphony. That was something that they were trying to expose us so that when we were in the larger community, right, we wouldn't be like deer in the headlight, that kind of thing. Health, and then like Tiffany said, command of the fundamental processes. This is critical. This is a critical point. Look at all of the things they incorporated into their curriculum. And yet, if you were to check off each one today, the only one you would be left with probably is the command of the fundamental processes, math, English language, so you wonder why students come out and they don't think critically. They have no appreciation for anything except the immediate, and if you give them an idea or a problem to solve that goes beyond what they've learned through just the regular curriculum as a result of our accountability—and anybody who says that the beginning of accountability with NCLB was designed to help our children, as uh, Dr. Lomate said in a lecture, he said, I haven't seen one reform in the U.S. that has helped our children. And so when you you look at what has happened, we have a marginalized education system. We have a marginalized um, curriculum. Now, quickly, before desegregation, this was our heritage. This was the truth that we used to refute the dominant narrative. With desegregation, what happened to our schools? Black educators were fired, black teachers in mass, and now the system that we use to educate children has been totally demolished. So that they are now being educated in communities, segregated, resegregated communities, but with teachers who are teaching ahistorically. They don't have an idea or a sense of what it, what they need to be doing to educate children. The elders last night talked about that, how marginalized population, if you want to destroy a society a community, who do you destroy first? The children. The children. And that's what we have done systematically, systemically, through racism in this society, we've destroyed the children. And our parents, to their credit, to Vincent's paper, Vincent's and Brandy's paper, they are searching for a way to keep their children from being destroyed. And yet, as educators, except for Um, endeavors like you're having, we we bemoan, but we don't look for the history. Because when you're in an untruth, post-truth, ahistorical era, you can't look at that. So where do you go? What do you do? What do you do after the truth? You know, I couldn't even understand this theme until I looked at the post in front of truth. And then I said, oh, old English teacher, post means after. That means after the truth, yeah, that helped me understand, put it in a box I could deal with. Okay, so there are some things. There is evidence that you can take historical principles and incorporate them in today's society. African-American education, uh, a model for university and school engagement is such an example. Titus, teaching in the urban south. We took principles, the principles, and some principal too. We took both of them, and we created some professional development based on this historical model. That's what we used, and they were amazed at how much we could get done. Okay, and I'm proof. I'm proof of what can happen in a segregated school, in a segregated society, right? We recently had an anniversary, I'm not gonna tell you what year, but we recently had an anniversary of my class. Out of that class, at least 25 were the first to do things in their fields. You could not do that if the dominant narrative about these schools was true. When I became a principal, I had been through leadership, but what I used as my playbook was what I had experienced as a child growing up. That's how powerful it is. If we refute and reject the dominant narratives that we cannot survive. The indigenous elders last night talked about how they are recreating their reality for themselves, and if anything, in a post-truth era, an historical era, our guides must be those lessons that help children and a society survive and navigate through the hegemonic dominance in this present post-truth era. That's it.
5: we get to sit down. Yeah, we, uh, <clears throat> if you don't mind, another proud colleague. So we have limited time left, and we, uh, we are interested in having authentic um, dialogue conversation. We certainly have a lot to discuss. So I'm just going to say a few things, and then my colleague, uh, Dr. Jillian Ford, will also share some things, and I really I just wanted to um, appreciate the framing. So the first paper, I think, in response to Amy Stewart Wells's uh, uh, framing of this conference, she's asking us, how are we using research to push back on, to push back against the post-truth paradigm? And essentially, we've we've seen that we're doing that. Not only are we doing that now, but there's a historical accounting for how we've always been doing that. And and, and what I was hearing is that sort of inherently being black or a person of color, at least in the context of the U.S., we've always been um, navigating this tension, and we've been hearing how so. And so I think what's really important is just to remind ourselves that it's really um, dangerous to be ahistorical. Um, We're truly missing out if we don't remind ourselves from whence we come and uh, remind ourselves that we've always been people with double consciousness and We've always dealt with this duality, and because of that, I think that we are inherently innovative and creative in um, both thinking about historical, um, you know, things that have happened historically, and thinking about how we can apply that in contemporary times. Um,
10: yes, thank you. So, um, right. So, I wanted to just reiterate also what Keisha said and what all of the um, papers really talked about, which is that this is nothing new. I heard in every paper that this is nothing new, and the insistence that, you know, I thought it really spoke volumes when you said, Cheryl, um, that it was hard to even wrap our minds around the meaning of the theme of this conference because, and I think that's very indicative of the experience for many of us in K-12 school systems. Things that are said that are taken as, as, you know the word, or taken for granted as the truth. We have to even question that. So, what are you talking about, post-post truth, or why, how is that different now since 2016 than it has been since 18, since 1619? You know, because it's been it's been untruthful. Um, one of the things that Kiese Lehman talks about that I just wanted to bring into the conversation is the way that these um, the way that our our indigenous knowledges and those knowledges that we know to be true inherently are confronted by lies. And then the ways that this is very crazy making in the U S. So, um, layman says that, um, in how to slowly kill yourself and others in America that, um, talking about the worst of white folks. The worst of white folks wasn't some gang of rabid white people in crisp pillowcases and shaved heads. The worst of white folks was a pathetic, powerful it. It conveniently forgot that it came to this country on a boat, then reacted violently when anything or anyone suggested that it share. It was all at once crazy-making and quick to violently discipline us for acting crazy. So, what I heard in a lot of the papers was this um, was these dichotomies that are crazy making. So I heard you talk about um, Tiffany this uh, uh, pathologizing of black folks um, And then at the same time, at oh, pathologizing black folks for fighting for freedom at the same time as the uh, American Revolution. And the idea that all men are created equal um, was being written and and codified at the same time as the three-fifths compromise. So all of these ways that what we're seeing, we are also simultaneously being told that's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, what is true about all of these papers that's really strong is talking about the creativity that we have as black folks to push back against that, to state our own truth, and the necessity to keep that going. So
5: we invite you to pose questions or engage in conversation.
11: First of all, I very much enjoyed all the presentations. Kudos to everybody for for the job well done. I do have a question about uh, this last panel um, just uh, came before us. Without a doubt, it's unquestionable that the majority of these teachers that we're talking about, particularly in the pre ground era, were actually trained in historical black colleges and universities. And I wonder if you could fill in that gap or helping us understand what was going on at these HBCUs that actually helped to shape that civic engagement, actually helped to shape. I mean, you gave an example of Fisk University, but right. you know scores of other examples where HBCUs were really sort of breeding grounds for teaching black history. Uh, almost every black college president was a car carrying member of the Association for the Study of Negro Black mm-hmm. History. The mm-hmm. boys, Carter G. Woodson, all of these folks who made their way through these institutions and are doing so up to train generations of educators and teachers. So I wonder if you could fill in the gap because outside of that reference to fist, I didn't really hear a lot about HBCUs and really kind of training these teachers for successive generations. I, in
3: I appreciate that question. I consider myself the HBCU prof, so I would love to jump in there. <laughs> um, let me say this, if I can invoke the Afrofuturism lens again and time travel a bit, that certainly was the case historically, it is not the case now. By and large, HBCUs have abandoned their original missions, especially when it comes to education and training teachers and I'm not going to put all the blame on them, a lot of the states, so if the, if the HBC was a public institution, the state has such a prescriptive curriculum that there is no more room for classes and coursework. I'm at Albany State University. We have had to cut classroom management and creative and effective um, methods for education. We're down to bare bones. And so other than faculty bringing in their own expertise on these subjects, and teaching these things, it's not happening because there's no room in a state curriculum for teacher education anymore for those things. We also have to look at a lot of HBCUs are being um, devoured from the inside out. There are far too many people at our historically black colleges and universities that ain't got love for HBCUs. Right, they're there um, not to further those original missions, but to create new ones where they're using diversity as a code word to infiltrate and appropriate our original missions. Right? And at the same time, make us something that we were never intended to be. And so, to your point, I think we do need to turn to the history of how these HBCUs operated. The problem is, there are too many of us in them now that don't want to turn to the history. We're too busy trying to copy and paste from the nearest PWI. And if we do p- that, we create teachers that might look like us, but don't teach like us. Leaders who look like us, but don't lead schools like us. And I think that's where HBCUs. We have to have a collective, realistic conversation about where we have been and where we have ended up.
6: And let me just piggyback on what um, Tiffany is saying. When we we talk about the symbiotic relationship, we're we're just not talking about the community writ large. We're talking about the relationship that existed between those in the academy the K-12 school leaders, and that that was a network that existed. A part of that network um, Siddle Walker talks about in um, the hidden education of Horace Tate, Tate. but particularly in Georgia, for example. Every every state had regions, there were nine regions in Georgia, and the uh, higher ed worked with the K twelve, so it wasn't just that the higher ed were training the teachers. They were they were working, in addition to the training that they received in the school. Um, you had people like Pearl Pearlie Dove who actually wrote the curricula for Georgia for teachers that was um, later appropriated on a national level. And then there's another piece that, and I'm talking about Georgia as the context, right? And I'm in the segregated South when they would not educate the black uh, people who wanted to go to college. They had to go out of state and they would pay for them to get their education. And so to say that the HBCUs were the only ones who were informing these practitioners, I think that the curriculum and the way it was propagated throughout in the same way for example you can go to a school and i'm mentioning K12 in South Carolina and they will talk about the same kinds of things that people did in Georgia the same kind of rituals the same kind of traditions that didn't come from just HBCUs that came from the HBCUs plus the um, plus the, the regions and the network that existed without going into more detail
8: mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a question, and I like your comment, Tiffany. Uh, a lot of the state schools, in particular, have to align their practices and so forth with the state boards of education. So my question then is, in HBCUs and even in non-HBCUs, how do we reconcile that without using the Can curriculum that we have to use? How do we reconcile that for those of us who do have a conscience and who would like to? integrate and embed some of these principles and practices into our
3: teaching. Thank you for that. I think one of the important things, again, is to turn to the history. So what were they doing? We saw all those seemingly extracurricular things that were added to. One of the things that I've done since I've been at Albany State University, and it's not official, mm-hmm,
9: right.
3: right, because I know the work that I think should be happening at the right. institution, that the institution may not think needs to happen. Right. And so I do a lot of, of um, what Dr. Johnson would call edge of school spaces. I do a lot of extracurricular programming. So we have movie nights. We have book clubs. We have these conversations. All of my classes require service learning projects. So you got to do something in the community and come back and tell me what you did. Show me evidence that you did. You know, that kind of um, forcing the conversation beyond the curriculum, and it, it requires a sacrifice on the part of faculty because you have to be willing to give that extra time. No one, and I can't turn that in on my tenure promotion file. right? But it is because I believe in the original missions of these institutions.
6: And Arvin, I'm sorry, Dr. John uh, One of the things, we, since we work with um, graduate students, want to be principals and want to be assistant principals, right? one of the things that I do is I give them a book list that will not touch anything that they will have read anywhere. Their highest potential. You know, that's just that's just an example, but and then when they read it or self-taught, right? -hmm. And then when they read it, they say, "Oh, I didn't know that was going on. I didn't know people doing this kind of thing." Because in their curriculum, nobody touches that. And so even though I know with a few students I'll get pushback, I say I don't care. You know, choose something. You know, and I put enough, I sprinkle enough books that they'd be comfortable with so if they really want to read that. But kind of informally, I'm trying to, to force them to read and engage in something that they won't get anywhere else. Mm, right. Yeah, And then we can talk about it, you know. Mm-hmm. I
4: just wanted to make a point about the. Um the, the importance of the independent black institution, certainly H, HBCUs at the collegiate level, but also the work that we were doing with People's Charter, which is clearly out of, which is a continued trajectory out of certainly resistance, resistance movements that were those from below kind of movements, those quote-unquote grassroots right. movements. So n- not just in school spaces, but the edge of school spaces and these unsanctioned, Educative spaces that I talked about in my research, um, where <laughs> <laughs> it, the, the creative, the, the public intellectuals, the cultural worker did a lot of that work as well. Mm-hmm. So the musicians, the dancers, the the um, the church community, there was education that was occurring in these um, unsanctioned but still educative spaces that that was that formed the character that you talk about. We talked about this notion of iwapele Pele that predates the progressive era, right. that is rooted in African tradition, that character is very important. And it was beyond just reading, writing, and arithmetic. It was a core foundation of how we build our folks up, and also civic engagement. And to just really reinforce this notion that um, we need to be looking towards independent black institutions a bit more and attempting to, I know it's, it seems very idealized that, um, we should focus a lot of effort because unfortunately many of our children are just filtered into the school system and what do you do? But perhaps if we're not building these sanctioned educative spaces, but we also spend time researching, studying, building these edu-school spaces, these unsanctioned educative spaces, these spaces within the school that are resistive and do look back, like the San Burt, into the history of what we were doing and allow that to be the space. Because as educators, we all know that they tell us, you know, NTPA makes it even worse, Right. all right? But I can't even spend a semester talking to you about this lab deal with this nonsense that you gotta do just so you can get a certificate to go out into the world and do this work. So when does it happen? And it has to happen, especially if we're sending these teachers out and they are educating, in these public
6: school systems, black and brown children, because that's where where we are. And and you know, Kalila, to be personal, my niece is um, a teacher, right? And she, I have to give her a pep talk at least once a month to not give up Mm -hmm. because of the system, because of how the system has um, prescribed what they can do. And I said, don't you ever have any glimmer of hope? And she said, yeah, every now and then, but I'm surrounded by so many people, and it doesn't matter the color now, who don't believe in the students, and who don't really care. Um, One of the papers talked about parents who just want school people to care about their children. It's become a job now for too many, because, they made it, and so they don't understand what their job is in helping to uplift these children who are at the bottom, and it has nothing to do with the presentation. But if people who, black people who are in a community, if they see more than 15 black stu- children, oh, what are they gonna do? You know, they must be thugs, they must get, they're getting ready to, 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 you know, to, to rob me or something. And I'm looking up and saying, there's nothing wrong with these children. These are your children, and if you—because you've you middle class, you can turn your you back on them, and away. I think that's part of it. You know, those of us who have, quote, made it, we've turned our—and don't get me wrong, I'm not so idealistic that I think it's easy. The challenges are far greater than they were with—during with, with the pre brown era, where children were programmed to get your education. If you don't do anything else, you get your education. That was it. It's more difficult now. But for me, the question is, in light of that, those of us who work with with students who are going out and either help our children survive or destroy them, how do we encourage them in a post-truth era? Because it, it seems to me the irony is that they bought into the untruth. And so we have to dissuade them from the untruth that they bought into and help them see the truth. What do we do? Can, can I speak to that? I can't. No, can ma'am. I, yeah, I'm, just, I'm just teasing.
3: I can't, uh, um, I, I can't in good conscience allow the conversation to continue without talking about the importance of intergenerational contact and communication. So what you're saying is that we're not connected to the students. I think some of these young teachers have not been mentored by older black teachers that have, a, have that racial uplift. I also can't continue without talking about Dr. Kofi Lomponte who is in here who has done a lot of work with Council of Independent Black Institutions and founding these schools, helping protect them and maintain them. We can't be serious about creating these alternative spaces, these edge-of-school spaces, if we're not in active community and communication with our elders that have done the work. And I think that's part of the game that these state schools and the problem that HBCUs are using now. We're turning to—I teach educational philosophy in the books they want me to use, and it ain't nothing but dead white men. When we have walking, talking elders who have shown and proven in our communities, and we're not calling on them. That's incredibly problematic to me. And I think what Sheryl is saying is difficult is because we have moved away from the racial uplift language. We used to tell students, you have to get an education so you can be free, so your people can be free, so your people cannot be oppressed. Now we tell them it's because you need to get a good job right. and they know that's not true. And we used to tell them that,
6: we used to give them the reality that you have to be better than. I'm not saying this is what's good but you're going to have to work harder. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. <laughs> you, you have to work harder. You have, I don't care if it, how hard it is. You have to, you start behind, the, when the bell rings, you start at the back, right? And you have to run to catch up. Nobody's telling you students don't tell that. And, I not mean to cut you off.
1: That's fine. That's
6: when you raise your hand, I, I bow to the elder. <laughs> <laughs> What's in the
1: discussion today? to make the public schools better for the children. Specifically, in this case, we the children. Like I and I think that that's important. We do have to make the schools better, because for a very long time, the majority of our children to be in public schools. But the reality, in my mind, is that public schools in the United States have never worked to benefit children of African descent. <laughs> there's been, as you said, there's been no reform effort that's benefited the majority of African-American children. They've never worked for our children. They don't work for our children. And they never will work for our children. Yeah, sure. And so that, that raises the question of then what do we do with regard to the future of people of African descent? I've been involved for almost 50 years with independent health students. But I'm not naive enough to think that those schools are going to be where we're going to educate the majority of our children. Certainly not for sure. Because less than 101% of our children are in And um, it's, it's just not going to happen in the short But the reality is that if we do not control the education of our children in independent schools in the long run, then nothing's going to happen to that's our, that's our that's children that's and our people. Haki team uh, some of you may know me, Donna, Carol Lee's husband, wrote a book in 1973 entitled, Plan to Plan, the Need for African on And in that book he argued that we made the point that continuing to send our children to other people their education is like blowing their brains out. Mm -hmm. And um, I I, I just, you know, it doesn't matter whether your people complain about the fact that 80% of the teachers in public schools are white. Most of the black teachers are doing the same thing. Yes, yes. Yes. Um, Most, most Black teachers. I'm talking about HBCUs, to which are not independent. Centers. Right, no. Some of them. Some of them. Oh, God. Y'all gonna start interrupting my president?
8: Yeah, I do want to acknowledge it's 150, but uh
3: if you can continue, but in interest of uh, the session being
10: over, thank you for
5: coming.
1: Mm-hmm. I just, I just don't think that. You have black teachers from all levels who have been educated by black people. And that's good. But if they haven't been educated by black people, well, I'm say that differently. You have black teachers who have been educated by white people. And in some cases, they've been educated by black people who have been educated by white people. Right, yes. So right. it's the same bottom line. We've we got to change the agenda. Uh, and I don't think it's going to happen in college. I
8: agree.
1: we got to keep improving them because we all want our individual children to do better. Right. And we don't have independent schools all over the place. But they're not the solution for our life. I agree. Neither are HBCUs as presently controlled As presently
3: controlled I agree.
1: I've led to them.
4: support the people's charter <laughs> there's a question so,
3: I personally feel though, you know, representation
9: it really matters. I mean it, it, it matters. Um, what I see right now and I think he just gave the the numbers there. Eighty percent of the teachers are are white. Um, representation it, it matters. When you ask a black person, um, I, I teach I'm in the teacher aid program. Most of my students are white females. I had one African American male and he dropped out of the program. Then another one came and he made it past one. Um, I don't think I the first one see? Um, And then, so my, my, my question is, even when I ask the question, there's a people who, uh, you, should, you should consider being a teacher. Why don't right, you want to be down I don't I mean, it's like, whereas teaching used to be an honorable career. It, it still down is. down on it now. But we forget the fact that they need to see us in the classroom. And there's research that shows that, you know, and the foundation of when young black men see one black man in that foundational period, they tend to do better later in life, you know, in, in high school and in college. So how can we get teaching to be um, a career that, that more black and brown people should consider, even
3: consider? I, 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 just, I have a problem with the fundamental premise of the question, and that is that it's a career. Yes, I'm um, calling. I'm sorry. Right. When I was um, graduating from the Fort Valley State University under my president, Dr. Kofi Lomate, um, <laughs> we had a visiting professor from Zimbabwe, Dr. Vimbai Chival Order, and I told him I was I couldn't figure out whether I should pursue my master's degree in psychology, my undergrad degree is in psychology, or should I go to Florida International University, which had an African New World Studies um, with an emphasis in pedagogy degree. And he sat at my mama's kitchen table and said to me, baby, there is a difference between a vocation and a calling. I think the game we have played wrong is that we've tried to sell it as a profession and a career. It's not that. In fact, the first day of class, on all my class, my students will tell you this is the right hand of God. That's, yeah, that's my right hand. My right hand of God. On the first day, I asked them, is this your calling? If it's not, I need to, I'll, you can be excused, go to the register, you change your major. It's not about money. And I don't want anybody in the classroom who's there for the money. I can show you how to start some side hustles. I got about 15 of them. Right? I can show you how to make money, but that's not what this is. And I think as long as we're trying to sell it as a career, we know that there is not a lot of money in education. Unless you're doing consulting work and that kind of thing, you get one of those kush-kush jobs. But if you're going to be in a nine-to-five classroom, you're not going to make a lot of money. It can't, we can't drive the decision based on that. That's a capitalist ideology. It doesn't work Barbie. It, it just doesn't work. So I think the question, to your point, is how do we recruit more teachers of color? That's a different conversation than how do we make the teaching profession a viable career choice.
8: So, so if, if I can jump in. Uh, what we're doing at Rowan University in New Jersey, we are recruiting high school students who want to become teachers, right. right? So once we recruit those students, we bring them into the university, we actually serve as they mentor. So from the time I was in first grade to kindergarten, I mean from first grade to 12th grade, I never had an African-American male teacher. When I became a teacher, I never had a a mentor, so I was lost. So how do I give back? So I wanted to join this program in which we take these students in, we work with them, we mentor them, and then—I'm a principal in New Jersey, so I invite those students to my school and say, hey, whatever you need— I want to show you some real-time experience, but whatever you need, let me be that one to mentor you. There's a group of individuals, only seven of us, that goes around the state of New Jersey to try to recruit male and female Hispanic and um, African-American teachers. So that's what we're doing in New Jersey.
4: Going ed. and that's one of the reasons why when I obtained my Ph.D., I decided to stay in my K-12 position for a while just to see you know, how things will go as far as um, just looking at the stigma. And this may become a research area later on, I'm not sure. But I have decided to stay in that area right now because I see the need. And I see that I can take what I've learned and what I've learned at URA and all these different conferences, even though I fit the bill because my district does not pay for me.
1: Right. Wow. I go to these conferences and I right. still take those ideas and those things that I've obtained back and I use that with my K
5: 12 students. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a good point. Yes. yes. So feel free to ask questions um, to panelists afterwards. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
3: Thank you. <laughs> Oh, I was gonna
0: pull out last like, oh,
3: no. So there you have it guys I thank you for listening all the way through because that was a lot but I hope you enjoyed it again that was um, we're teaching in the urban South Titus we're a 501c3 nonprofit located here in the urban South. Uh, doing our best to, to ensure quality education for all students. Um, again, if you're interested in being on the podcast, hit me up at www.tellumtiptoldyou.com. Look for that Be Our Guest button or send us an email at drtip@tellumtiptoldyou.com. at You can also request additional information about Titus there. Thanks. Have a good one, y'all.